Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you done any drugs lately, Tully? No. Nah. Hello and welcome back to Dungeon Deep Dive. It's another episode here uh, and in the studio with me I have... I'm a Lachlan. I might be Grace. And this could Grace. be Tully here. Th- this is Grace and Tully. Don't let anyone fucking tell you otherwise. Okay, no, I, s- I swear to God, listeners at home, listeners at home, this episode does have Grace and Tully. Now, if you listen to another episode and there is something different, there is something strange... You are not safe. But I can confirm, as I am in the studio tonight, this is Grayson Tully. And for now, for now, the darkness is at bay. I just want to be like fun, sexy, and mysterious. And you had to go and rat me out. Can't believe we have people knowing that we are mortal and fallible. Well, speak for yourself. Before we get started, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're recording on, um, the Mianjin uh, land of the Turrbal and Yagara people, uh, known, uh, it, known as Brisbane. Um, these lands have always been places of, of storytelling and learning, and uh, we'd like to continue in that tradition as much as possible, but we also want to acknowledge uh, that sovereignty was never ceded, and this is... Uh, Aboriginal land. Yeah, so we'd just like to pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Mm. Um, if you want to reach out to us at all, uh, hit us up at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. Or on our socials at Dungeon Deep Dive. Yeah. And with that, I suppose we should bloody get into it, shouldn't we? Yeah, I suppose so. So, it's a bit of a... <laughs> bit of a bit naughty of a, episode today. Bit of a fun one today. Oh. <laughs> We're talking about drugs. So I love drugs. And that's the end of the episode. End episode. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah, this episode. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is all of just just sitting around and being like, yeah, I've done drugs. Um, no, but drugs. Lots of people have done drugs. Is the thing. Um, and I don't think that tabletop games, or games, or fiction in general, often very ha- handle drugs very well. No, uh, a lot of the time, it's there's a there's a very black and white dichotomy when you're presenting drugs in fiction. I feel it's very much like either completely innocuous and it's just like a th- like oh these this characters having a crazy time right now and it never comes up again. And there's never a thing. Or it's like the bane of, of, of all civilization. It's like the root of all evil. It ruins everyone's lives the moment they come into contact with it. I feel like there's not a lot of like nuance, especially in like fantasy and stuff with this sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I was going to talk about this up the, ta- the top of uh, my sort of section, but it actually fits pretty perfectly in now. 
Um, obviously, Dungeons and Dragons has always been, and that's that's where we're centered mostly. Dungeons and Dragons, all the most of what we talk about is going to be pretty, pretty nebulous. It can go for whatever system you use, but Dungeons and Dragons itself uh, has always been the subject of moral panic ever since the beginning. Oh uh, yeah, uh, especially in the US, it was there was this sort of idea that this was uh, a hotbed of occultism and uh, sex, drugs, and murder. This is like a gateway to your kids becoming heathens and sinners. Um, Which is crazy, by the way, because... And not to get too into it, because it's not the topic of this podcast. I have been doing for... Partly for my honours and partly for an upcoming episode, some research into the ties between, like, the far right and Nazis and the occult and stuff. Mm. And, like, if you want to find the place in America that has been a hotbed for the occult and, like demonic dark magic shit i I can tell you where to go it is not a dungeons and dragons table my friend it is any conservative office ever yeah any far-right group they're all they fucking love magic Mm. it's crazy they're a wild bunch i mean i feel like people like nazis man i feel like people like to talk about like all the draw like sex drugs and rock and roll and shit uh but like i feel like the only time i've ever heard of like a widespread coke and like drug addiction has been in like white collar offices where people like work themselves to death oh it actually is kind of relevant to this do you want to know who like either invented or popularized like methamphetamines um the nazis that makes sense, Hell actually, yeah, because yeah, they were they, they were used to keep people, up. yeah, keep soldiers away. There are some. Well, it was the Soviets also used them, and the Allies also used them to like keep soldiers up in the field and stuff. But there are some very credible reports that pretty much everyone in the Third Reich that was like around Hitler at any point was just pinging hard all Jeez. the time. That's uh, there are some people who say that that's a big part of why. Um, like Hitler devolved so much into like the screaming maniacal madman that he eventually became. I mean, some people say that it was like uh, that it's like some people argue that it's completely calculated and it's like just him as he was just that that awful person and it's mm. like what he had inside him, mm. which is true to some level, I think. But I mean, at least when you get to the point that he was at with like bigotry and everything. But the drugs couldn't um, help the situation. But no. yeah, there are some his like. A uh, doctor was giving him like a shit ton of meth all the time. Hey, what about That'll that? Do it. What about that Soviet guy that like popped all these pills and then went on like a killing rampage oh, for like a week? It's actually unfortunate. I think I don't think that was a Soviet. I think uh, the unfortunate thing is I think that wasn't. I don't really know who it was. was I just know that it was like I think it was a Polish soldier during yeah, the Polish inv- or Finnish. It was something. It was like a Polish that. or Finnish soldier during the invasion by the Soviets. Uh, so they were. It was unfortunate they were shooting communists the whole time, but it was pretty fucking cool what they did. Yeah, because <laughs> um, it was. A, I think it was like a. It was like a. An end. It was like an anti-imperialist force or something. Mm. Um, but it was so one of the interesting things to note, and this is sort of about like generally the tabletop view of drugs and how it's been dealt mm. with in D&D, uh, there doesn't really appear to be any published reference to drugs in 5th or 4th editions. But um, after sort of D&D and AD&D came out, the moral panic was starting to die down a little bit. Uh, and D&D 3rd edition comes out. And they decide, Wizards decides, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to bring in some of those more dark and occult things that we haven't been able to because of the moral panic. We're going to bring in some of this stuff because there's a bit of a market for it. Um, so they publish uh, a supplement called The Book of Vile Darkness. Oh, <laughs> oh, good. Which is, to date, I believe the last uh, 
the last reference to drugs explicitly in uh, printed D&D source material. Interesting. Um, and there was a, there was a bit of a, a backlash to this, not as much as you would expect probably, but essentially the, the major criticism was we've spent so long getting away from this moral panic criticism and now we've published the fucking book of vile darkness which has <laughs> drugs and demons and poisons and curses and the occult. And it's just everything that any conservative mother was scared of their kid having. I love mm. that. Um, but yeah, so the book of vile darkness is where drugs were put and their mechanics for drugs and stuff like that. And it really does show a little bit of a misunderstanding of how addiction works and of drugs as a, as a whole. Um, so that, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the background of drugs and D&D. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's interesting. Um, yeah, th- I think that is an interesting kind of parallel to draw between like the treatment of the game and the treatment of this part of the game or like drugs in general in fiction and stuff. That there are mm. some very interesting parallels between the two. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, what I wanted to get into was because this stuff is when it is dealt with in fiction especially in games video games and tabletops um i'm thinking of specifically Mm. um but i'm sure that this counts for other variants on game um but a lot of the time when you do come across drugs it'll just be like a stat thing it'll be like you get this stat boost if you take like it'll be like you take mentats in fallout or something Mm. and you get like a little bit of an intelligence boost but like you get some withdrawal effect and it's just like a stat thing yeah um but drugs have been i don't know if i don't know if you've noticed pretty fucking important in terms of how things have developed like how our world works and stuff there's a lot of i don't believe you i think i need some examples well there's a lot of there's a lot of power and money tied up in drugs um and it's interesting because so uh, i went into this with kind of a thesis statement or or a research question Hmm. because i'd noticed i've been doing some some reading uh when i have time lately on delphi um, and I know we've talked about Delphi on the podcast, so I won't get into it. But um, Delphi, uh, I'm sure you remember, one of the theories was that the volcanic fumes were part of the reason why, like, that whole situation kind of worked out as well as it did for yeah. for the Pythia. Because they were, they were hallucinating the whole time. Yeah, a- at least that's the belief. And there has been, they've, I was reading about this recently, they have found, like, fissures and stuff in the volcanic rock underneath where they think Delphi did her... Uh, rituals hmm. and did her like prophesizing and stuff that would let uh, volcanic fumes through. So uh, that is, de- there were definitely volcanic fumes in the air while Delphi was doing her shit, which probably did help. Yeah. But I was thinking about it and I mean, we don't know a lot about how she works, right? In fact, most of the stuff written about how she did her rituals just says here they do it as the Pythia did in Delphi. Mm. So, like, even the places that did the same procedure as her are just written as if it's common sense. It's, like, common knowledge. Of course, you do, what it, Delphi you do does. it the way Delphi did. Yeah, and so nobody has written down what Delphi did. We have some accounts from Plutarch, but it's not a lot. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, man, it seems like the way Delphi works is so commonly known, is so unremarkable, that nobody thinks that it's worth noting. Because... If you're going to get a prophecy done, you know how Delphi does it. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't be going to get a prophecy done. Like, Delphi was kind of like, 
the gold standard, yeah. you know? Like, it's what you compare the profits to. So, I was thinking about it, and I was like, why doesn't anybody talk about the fumes if the fumes have been proven geologically to be a, a legitimate possibility? And I was like, maybe drugs were just too common. Hmm. Maybe it was just such a part of life to take something that would alter your mind state or to have an altered mind state in general that it wasn't remarkable enough to write down. And so I did some, some looking. Um, I read mostly, uh, I have an article and most of a book. I didn't read the rest of the book because it got too much into the industrial era and it was like, I don't really care too much about fentanyl. Mm. Um, that, d- that doesn't really serve Dungeons and Dragons purposes very you're not much. A, you're not a fentanyl sort of person? Uh, well, I mean, I personally, no, I love fentanyl. I was I'm just saying say, I didn't like, want to talk about fentanyl on the podcast. That's fair. That's you don't kind want of to like... my private life. Yeah. I try to keep my work and my life separate. Famously. Um, so and this, this is your life, right? The fentanyl is your work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a professional fentanyl addict. Um, so interestingly, uh, for instance, the ancient Greeks didn't have a word for addiction or any concept of drug dependency or anything. Oh, there you go. Um, what they did have, and this was kind of where I realised that, that there might be something to my theory. What they did have was the concept of what was called pharmacons. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But it's a product of medicine, any product of medicine, which could be anything from something that we would consider a drug today, like a medical drug today, to something we would consider like an intoxicating drug today, all the way through to a fucking chant in the right circumstances. Wow. Like any, it's the same as how, do you remember when I was talking about uh, a few episodes back about how doctors would have like prayers written in their books, even though part of their book would say magic doesn't work, you can't use that as medicine. Hmm. And then they would still have in their list of official working medicines, just like random literal magic spells and shit. It's that this is where that concept kind of comes from. Uh, that's like this is like the root of it. Where medicine was invented didn't have any way to distinguish between these things. If something had an effect on a disease state, then it was medicine. Then it was medicine. And so, can I just sorry just to briefly jump in on the etymology because I was I was sure addiction would come from some, something either Latin or Greek. Mm. Um, as it turns out, it does come from the Latin, um, but it. Addiction comes from uh, adicere, which is uh, a conjugation of adico, uh, but it basically means to speak favorably for or to recommend. Yeah. So addiction is actually just you've been recommended this thing. <laughs> Me just like getting well, off my it face sounds and being like, like, like ma- hey, have you girls tried laudanum? It, it just it sounds like a, a doctor's prescription. Yeah. It's like. Here you go. And it, and it has, because it's Latin, it has the fun double meaning of, because Latin um, subjects aren't ever classified. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's up to context, like what the subject of any, of any verb or anything is. Mm. Um, so the other, the flip side of that would be, and this would be why I would imagine why the word came about, because uh, an addict is essentially an, a walking advocate for a drug. Mm. It, at least, like, that would have been kind of how they looked at it without knowing much about how side effects and stuff really work in a clear way. Yeah. Someone being super into a drug would be, like, kind of the same. Like, you're told to take it. Now you're kind of telling everyone to take it because you take it all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's... And it's also important to remember that this also, when you're looking at Pharmacon in the ancient Greece, a, a vox media, it, it's also 
called? It says here. I don't know what Vox Media means. Medea. Oh, Vox. I, I imagine it's Media. As yeah, in like I think medicine. So. Um, can be bad as well. Poison is a pharmacon. Any hmm. active substance, anything that actively does something to the biology of the body is a pharmacon at this time. So uh, the ones that are talked about mostly in kind of the context of ancient Greece, uh, cannabis is a big one. Um, and cannabis, people just like did. It wasn't super common. It was, I think, a Mediterranean thing. Um, I mean, Greece is in Mediterranean, but it was kind yeah. of like a broader Mediterranean thing. It wasn't like a Greek thing specifically. Okay. Um, so they didn't like crazy into it. Um, I think that... Um, yeah, so, like, it's it's talked about by people like um, Galen and stuff. We'll talk about it in terms of it'll completely fuck you up and you're not going to do anything today, but it'll cure your gonorrhea, for instance. So mm. even at the time when it wasn't, like, a common thing or even a very, like, accepted thing so much, it was still seen somewhat as, like, a vice in ancient Greece. Mm. Um, because you've also got to remember that Galenic medicine is mostly telling people to exercise and eat well. So, like, if you're doing something that is getting in the way of that, which, like, doing a lot of drugs would, yeah, um, like, that's not going to be what your doctors want from you. And, I mean, I guess this is probably also, I'm not sure, you haven't really specified era, but, like, it would probably be similar to sort of the Socratic uh, philosophical times where it's all about virtue. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's that, I don't know, I don't know the timeline overlap between, like, Galen and the kind of, like, classic philosophers, um, but it is that culture. Yeah, you it's would have the, that... Uh, so to be a good to be a, a good person, you have to be aspiring to be a virtuous person rather than doing virtuous things. Yeah, we're or, talking Hellenistic city straight Greece. Yeah, so like it's it's the same. We're talking about the same Greece at least. Yeah. Um, there's another thing that comes up a lot in um, ancient in discussions of ancient Greece, which I just want to touch on briefly, called Nepenthes, which comes up. I think it's first mentioned in the Odyssey. Um, someone goes to uh, Ulysses' son, go, is compelled by Athena to go and search for his father who has gone to Troy. And so he goes to Troy and um, Helena, Zeus's daughter, is there. And basically she's mixing this thing called Nepenthes into people's wine and giving it out to everyone. Mm. And um, Homer describes how, like, everyone in the room become, like, it, it cancels their pain and they, like, but they don't cancel their pain in, like, a physical sense. He's sad because they're talking about, like, death. He gets there and he finds out that, like, I'm pretty sure the reason his dad's gone missing is, like, a battle or something. And everyone is devastated because, like, they're at war and, like, terrible things are happening. And so she puts this thing in everyone's drinks and the name kind of means, like, Edema, uh, like giving no pain or cancelling pain. Mm. But she talks about how, Homer talks about how she does that to everyone emotionally in the room. So even your emotions were considered like on the same level as these things. Something that altered how you felt about shit was just as much a pharmacon as anything else. Yeah. Which I think, I think is important to note. I mean, that, realistically, that could have been anything. Nobody knows if nepenthes was real if it was a drug specifically some people say it's an allegory some people say it's a combination of drugs some people say it's just cannabis or just this or just what that um but point being it was still classified as a pharmacon so it's that was how they talked about it's it. medicine that I'm was gonna, how they talked about it i'm going to start referring to any depressants in the same ways like the ancient greeks used to nepenthes? talk about yeah i mean like 
showing up at like a chemist or a doctor's one day and being like <laughs> begging fucking Delphi with my little like burnt basil leaves written like making a a sacrifice at an altar like please heal me <laughs> um it's also i think worth noting that uh the wife of the egyptian king that gave her this mm-hmm. that gave her this drug his name roughly translates to giving pain in many ways or to many people so it was like very like these things were very much associated with like pain and kind of like the emotions and and everything mm. and all of that was considered a very like medical thing. So I I just thought that was interesting from like kind of the I where like the ideas of like addiction and stuff kind of were in like the ancient world and everything. Yeah. Um. How long have I been going for? Uh, we're sitting at twenty one minutes. Okay, so not very. Um. The. M- because I still have. You've been going for like stuff. eleven minutes. Cool. Because I, I still I haven't gotten to the book. That's fine. Uh, so, yeah, we'll, um, we'll just do what we do. Okay. Cool. So when it runs out, we cut it in half, and it's two episodes. We call it a fucking day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was worth noting because that that's an important thing to preface. I'm going to now talk about like kind of the social role that drugs did have, mm. and I think it's important to know where our words came from and how they were talked about at the time that our phrasing came about. Yeah. Uh, when we were talking about things being like pharmacological and stuff, all of this stuff comes under the same umbrella. So, th- and that'll, I think make a lot of this that I'm about to talk about make a, make more sense when yeah. you know that there isn't a line between these and, things. And also it is very important to note, like sometimes when we talk about, uh, and I know uh, Lachlan tends to get big into like the, the ways of knowing, uh, these things, um, and it can sound like a little lofty sometimes, but the, the point being, the way that we come to understand a thing affects everything about it, about mm-hmm. uh, how it pervades our culture, about the general cultural views, uh, even about their specific mo- modes of use, whether or not they fell in, in and out of fashion. Um, like, it really is... Like, the, the perfect example is, is crack cocaine versus cocaine. Exactly, um, exactly. We came to understand it through the lens of, well, cocaine is a thing that businessmen did and businessmen are fine, so therefore cocaine is just a slap on the wrist. But crack cocaine, that's a thing that uh, drug addicts in the slums do, so that's a bad thing. That's different, And ergo, yeah. that's jail time for you. Crack is arguably better for you. And that's the thing is, like, what we came to understand it through the people that had to use it. The only reason that people, like crack cocaine was criminalised was because it heavily targeted black communities. And, I mean, uh, uh, Nixon's chief advisor who started the war on drugs has actively admitted, like, there, mm. is, a, there is a very famous quote, that, there is a recording of him saying it, saying, we started the war on drugs against crack and against cannabis because we could target black communities and we could target hippies. And that's the thing is, like, the ways of understanding... It's also proven that the CIA took, uh, was the one that introduced crack to the streets of America. Oh, absolutely. But, um, but uh, that's the thing is, like, the way we come to understand them through propaganda, through general, no- like, knowledge and the ways of knowing is actually really important for how they come about now how, mm. and how we see them now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's... And there is a very legitimate possibility that the fact that Homer refers to this unknown drug and, and the fact that we still don't know what the drug is, so people can kind of assign it to whatever, mm. uh, there's a very legitimate possibility that that's a big part of, like, the associations we have with drugs even today. Just, like, it's called taking away pain and it was given to this lady by someone whose name means giving pain. That's a very obvious dichotomy we're setting up about drugs. Yeah. Just from the fucking odyssey. Um, like, that's how far this shit goes back. So, this is interesting, okay? 
here's, here's, I think, the most interesting part of, of what I'm going to get into. So this book that I was reading is called The Forbidden Game. It's a very good book. It's by, by, a, name, by a man named Brian Inglis. Mm. Um, and it's basically like the sociological, his, sociological kind of anthropological history of drugs and like what they've done to society and stuff. Yeah. He talks about how there, some people have suggested, because there was a, an idea for a long time, that the reason priests and shamans and stuff and kind of the in kind of like tribal communities mm. would take these drugs was to reclaim some lost power so get back their ability to artificially recreate a lost ability to enter like a trance state for instance mm. interestingly because of how far back we can trace these drugs and because of how much we know about the way that people took drugs now, there are some historians who would go so far as to suggest it's the other way around, that things like yoga and meditation and stuff came about because as drugs fell out of favour in, like, shamanistic cultures, as things became more, like, rote and rules-based... People were finding ways to recreate those highs Mm -hmm. you could get into the same trance state where you would let go just flow say things Mm. if you could get in if you could completely clear your head it does the same thing that drugs do so there is so there's a possibility that the reason we even came up with that shit like the reason that like yoga was invented by like the millennia ago that it was or whatever i don't actually I, the, the history of yoga is a complicated one that we probably yeah yoga might m- yoga would How probably predate drugs. Old is uh, oh no because yoga's like a yoga as we know it is a very new thing but yoga is based on some very old things. Mm. It's like yoga as it exists now hasn't existed for that long. I'm yeah. pretty sure yoga as, as it exists now was invent was literally invented in the, the 20th, 20th century. century. Yeah, yeah, um, it was invented last the last century. Fifth or sixth centuries BC in ancient India's. Uh, was that like what it's what our current shit's based on? Yeah, they say roughly. It's not entirely sure, but yeah. Yeah. Fifth, sixth centuries. Yeah. So because we're talking, uh, you've got to remember, first of all, these, like the use of plant drugs pretty much goes back as far as people do. Mm. Like there, there isn't a culture that hasn't used these that we're really aware of. And as f- the further back you go, the more prevalent these things become. So if you go back far enough, like we're talking tobacco was the first big one. Mm-hmm. Um, because what people would do was they would, I mean, smoke it until intoxication. Um, so you would smoke so much tobacco, you would get like a, a, a shaman or something, um, and they would smoke it to the point where it did just completely fog up their brain. And, they, and you became intoxicated. And the idea was that in this intoxicated state, it kind of like freed you up to like explore the like divine kind of thing. Mm. So it was it was it was an incredibly common thing in pretty much every tribal community uh, that I mean had access to tobacco. And I mean the ones that didn't uh, are like a lot throughout uh, Asia, uh, specifically like Southeast Asia. Um, it was the the areca nut and the, the beetle leaf. Um, similar things. More commonly, actually, uh, psilocybin, uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Hmm. Very, very common. Fly agar. It's um was was the usual other choice. Um, sometimes it was things like ayahuasca, um, but for the most part, it people would be smoking tobacco, taking shrooms or 
drinking ayahuasca, depending on where you were. Mm. Um, and basically what they would do was someone would like come up to the shaman, like present them with like some issue of some kind. Um, and then they would go into like this trance state. They would be able to kind of like commune, f- something would commune through them or they would commune. Uh, earlier on, it was less, there was less distance between the person speaking and the thing being said. Like, it was still kind of them doing it. They had to prove their own ability to do it and to do it well. Yeah. Um, Which meant that there's, like, more kind of social stuff at play there because, like, if you fuck up, people just don't believe you. Yeah. Um, This is a time where power has to be gained through proof of legitimacy to kind of set people up and prove, like, you should build a culture, build a a community around me, and I can, like, tell you what to do. Because these, in a lot of uh, tribal communities, shamans were as powerful or only less powerful than, like, the chief of the tribe. Mm. Uh, These are incredibly powerful figures. Um, And they would kind of have to prove their mettle through being able to enter this trance state, being able to, like, problem-solve within it and stuff and give you kind of, like, insight and everything. And... While when tobacco and stuff were discovered by like colonizers, they were it was talked about as like, oh, these tribes are off here, like taking it and just getting drunk off tobacco all the time. Um, there was some, a lot of communities, and most communities even had very strict rules in place about who could do these things. You couldn't smoke tobacco to the point of intoxication if you weren't qualified to do it, or without supervision. You would have to have like your shaman come up to you and be like, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna walk you through this process. Yeah, you need to enter a trance state. That's going to help you with this situation. But you have to do it with me because I have my, I'm the one that knows how this works. I have my learner's license for tobacco and I do need an adult here to help me through it. Oh, but once I get my opens, just you wait. It's, it's Remember getting your Bunsen burner license? <laughs> oh, my God, <laughs> Just get yeah. your bong license at school. Oh, my God. Uh, we had that conversation only. You get it from the Royal Life Saving Society, Tully. Oh. I'm so sorry. It's like he fucking never did nippers. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you live on the fucking Sunshine Coast. Why don't you go right? to the goddamn beach? Um, I lived in like the suburbs of Sydney. That was a fucking trek and I still made it out there. Um, look, but... So... Here comes the first problem, though. Mm. Um, in terms of like the use of, of these drugs. When tobacco was discovered by coloni- colonizers who travelled to America, for instance... And Mm. they brought it back. Unsupervised. It was called, what was it it was called? It was called a herba panacea. Do you guys know what that means? Mm. Um, Herba panacea. So pan being everything. Mm -hmm. uh, Acea. Oh God. Um, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the the last bit seasoning. It's all seeing maybe. Yeah, a herba panacea is a plant that cures all ailments. Cures mm, all. That's, okay. That's always gone down well historically. And so cuz here's what I mean actually I think I I think um one of the mums from my old school is is selling that at the moment. Um the cure for everything? <laughs> yeah, uh, they gave me the option to get in on the ground level of ground floor of this new business actually. It's really cool. All you ah. have to do is get a couple of friends. <laughs> well, um, I can't wait to come to your herbal party. <laughs> So, and it's, it seems ridiculous to say now that tobacco could cure any of your illnesses. And it is, scientifically speaking. But here's where I want to kind of get into this. You've got to remember, when we're talking like medieval, colonial, 
kind of times, uh, like especially early on, we're talking about the humoral system of medicine. So if you yeah. can smoke tobacco when you're having a rough day and it gives you a bit of an energy boost. If you're if you have a headache and it clears your head a little bit because like the the buzz of it like kind of overwhelms the headache you're having. Stuff like that. Mm. If if you like smoke and your throat's really like goopy and you get a big lung full of tobacco and in that moment it kind of like clears your throat a little bit. From their perspective, that means that that drug is capable of balancing humors. If a thing is capable of balancing the humors in your head, it's capable of balancing the humors everywhere in your body because from their perspective, it's the same mechanics. The reason that you have gangrene in your finger is because the humors are out of balance. So mm. if my headache is caused by my humors out of balance and tobacco can fix that, then surely it can fix my finger too. So they'd put it in like a salve on the finger. They'd put just smoke more of it, shit like that. So uh, that's a big part of how tobacco was viewed, at least by kind of all drugs in general, were viewed by like Westerners. There was always a, an idea of they would find something that was being used for a very specific reason, whether that be a practical or ritual. And they would be like, well, this works for this. And according to the system of humours, it has to work for everything else. So it meant that, first of all, whenever Europeans found a drug anywhere in the world, they got so into it. It just blew up. And, I mean, you can fucking look at tobacco, for instance. Mm. Look at where we are today with tobacco. The reason we are like that, the reason that we have the, the problem with tobacco that we have now is because it was a herb of panacea. Yep. It's the whole reason. People didn't like smoking at first. Like it came, it came back, and they just, it just. I mean, they felt about it the way that you would expect people who would never smoke tobacco to feel about tobacco. It's gross. It's gross. I cough. It, I don't like smoke in my lungs. Um, it's in, like even into the the early twentieth century, like people were well aware of the health risks, but would continue to smoke uh, because it was medically recognised as as being something that would aid in quite a few things. Yeah, yeah, it's. And it does it does help with motor, uh, like fine motor control and alertness and stuff like that. It's a stimulant. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, the re- yeah, it caught off because it had like that lift. It gave you kind of the relaxation. And if you could kind of get past the like giddiness, the like lightheadedness, and the nausea that you got when you first started smoking it, like young English gentlemen would have like this very pleasant, like oh, kind of like uplift, like oh, I have a little bit of a spike of energy. And then Ooh, you combine I have a that bit of clarity. Combine Ooh. that with the treatment that you have of it, smoking it through a pipe or like treating it as something medicinal rather than just a couple of uh, pack of diaries from down the road. Yeah. Um, and you have to, you also yeah, have to remember that while a lot of these drugs that I'm going to mention were f- originally used as like shamanistic trance things, mm. that is not what they were ever used for in Europe. Europeans would have been fucking terrified if they smoked tobacco and they entered a trance state. Uh, they, they called it, they, in fact, to the point where they used the same language about it. Um, like, they, they talked about it as, like, drinking, as in, like, drinking it in. So that it became, like, they were even aware in their language of it that it, was a, that it, could, it had this risk of being this, like, all-consuming thing. So mm. everyone always avoided that. But, I mean, it caught people's attention because it could be used that way. People noticed tribes using it like that, and they were like, oh, shit, we should see what this we is. We should try this. Um, and the same thing comes about with pretty much everything we come across throughout history. Um, for instance, the 
uh, when coca was discovered, for instance, and was brought over to, like, Europe and everything. It was used in a lot of South American places, um, especially during colonial times, because if you gave a young man a coca leaf Mm. and let him chew on that throughout the day, you maybe gave him a couple more for when he ran out, he could work for 16 hours without food or drink. Completely fine, feel great, because he had the boost of coca. Hmm. Because, I mean, for those pe- for people who don't know, cocaine is derived fr- is the active ingredient in coca. The reason that we don't use coca the way that we use tobacco, though, because it was the same reason that they used it at least commonly. Hmm. In fact, it did catch on for a while. Would it be availability? No, it's because at the same time Europeans found cocaine, they invented chemical science. And so they extra- uh, found coca, rather, they invented chemical science. So just as it was catching on in Europe, just as it was catching on in the places that would kind of like become the hegemony we have now and would like decide how we view these things, Mm. they'd worked out cocaine. And so they started doing cocaine instead. Because from their perspective... Because it was chemically engineered, it was more pure. They've they've realised after all of these centuries of drugs going in a completely different way than expected that, oh, it's because plants aren't all the same. The, the way plants are made up, there's different amounts of chemicals in different plants. Mm. Like, you, you get one coca leaf and another, they're not the same, chemically. And they realised that, and they were terrified of it. This, like, need for control took over, and they were like, okay, well, if we just get the cocaine out, we can dose it, and it'll be fine. But then you're giving people pure cocaine, and that went how it went. And so, coca was abandoned completely was criminalized it was it was they stopped importing it they stopped using it it was completely like disparaged by everyone in positions of power mm-hmm. because they were just because of the association and and this is a pretty common theme throughout this shit it's just association none of these drugs are actually responsible for any of the things that they say that they're responsible for mm. um and I think that the two best examples of that, and and this is where I'll leave it after this, the two best examples of that are if you look at the history of opium and the history of alcohol. Yeah, well, I found, because I was looking at opium for this one and ended up abandoning it because I thought, my my sort of cultural association was opium dens being like this place of depravity and like sloth that had existed in China for years and years and years, as it turns out. Yeah, didn't they bring opium to China? Yeah. Didn't they bring it? Wasn't that the problem? Opium dens originated in America. (laughs) Oh boy, will we get into opium. First, I want to briefly touch on alcohol. Mm. Alcohol was around for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, Actual liquors weren't distilled until pretty late on. Like, we're talking, they know about a lot of drugs by this point. Um, They uh, were, like, it wasn't, by the time that by the time they, they were distilling alcohol, the idea that you could be intoxicated was not a foreign concept yeah. by this point. It wasn't like originally when they first found tobacco and they were like, oh, shit, people can do what with that? And when I say they, I mean colonizers. Fill in yeah. all my days with colonizers in this. That's fair. Um, I would know. Ne- I, I mean, I wouldn't fucking talk about like, just like chill tribal communities like that. <laughs> fucking, no, fuck the colonizers though. Um, so, it's a. It's interesting, right? So uh, it's kind of starts in like Tahiti, for instance. Uh, in a lot of these cultures and stuff, as they were kind of developing 
spirits, mm. um, which, I mean, destroyed England as well. Um, but as they were developing spirits, they were trying to, like, work out how to kind of... Tr- what they could trade with, like, tribal communities and, like, island communities and stuff that they came across. Yeah. Um, they tried to introduce alcohol because, I mean, they thought about it. The, the Europeans come along and they see this thing and they're like, okay... Well, everyone here is, like, taking drugs already because they had, I think in Tahiti, they had this thing called kava, yes. which is, um, a, like, a, another, like, chewing, like, herbal thing that gives you, like, a similar kind of, like, you can work through the day uplifting kind of thing. So I believe it is, from what I know know of it, which is, like, th- this is passing knowledge, so I haven't actually researched this for this one, but kava is a, a root, uh, sometimes chewed, sometimes ground into a powder and made into teas. Um, that's sort of the main types that you have it but it's it's oral uh use and i believe it's actually a depressant and hallucinogen from memory it's yeah typically yeah um it'll it'll usually be it's tricky because kava is like you're not going to get two kavas that are the same Mm. um it's a name for like a mix of drugs it's not a name for a specific cocktail of drugs okay um so it really depends on where you go and who you talk to but yeah it's usually something that'll kind of like chill you out some kind of depressant um and some kind of like stimulant or hallucinogenic or something that's light enough to just kind of give you because i don't know if you guys if people listening or if you guys have taken many hallucinogenics before no but the effect is very similar to stimulants plus if you get to a high enough threshold you start hallucinating okay um so like you you take lsd the way that you can tell the work that lsd will realize that lsd is working is you start getting like really energetic that's when you know it's kicking in mm. uh, and then the lsd shit starts happening so like that's why it would be hallucinogen so what? Sorry, I'm just imagining a, a teacher walking into the room with a mug that says, don't talk to me before I've had my, my LSD. I, the first time I ever took LSD was with a prep teacher. Um, <laughs> that's the mug that you pack when you're going to Splendour in the grass. <laughs> she, she'd gotten home from prep. She, was, she taught a class. She was a full-on prep teacher. She got home from class after mm. teaching her prep class. She came home. She was sitting on the couch. Uh, she was my roommate at the time. And she was doing a lesson plan. And I was like, hey, roommate, do you want to do some fucking acid? She was like, fuck yeah. And so she sat there finishing a lesson plan while her acid kicked in. <laughs> she was fucking teaching kids how to like read dice or something. It was great. Um, so... Yeah, so basically a lot of these communities that like missionaries and shit are showing up at are very like self-sufficient by this point. Like they don't need anything from especially missionaries and stuff. In fact, there's a there's a good quote from Diderot about it. It says, what possible benefit Diderot, I'm reading from the book here, mm. what possible benefit Diderot would ask could Christians with their hypocrisy, guilt and ambition bring to South Sea Islanders? They would arrive, he warned, quote, with crucifix in one hand and dagger in the other to cut your throats or force you to accept their customs and opinions. Gin bottle in the other would, be, would have been nearer the mark. But Diderot's warning, quote, one day under their rule, you will be almost as unhappy as they are, was soon to be justified. And so what happens is, uh, as people kind of are coming in and interfering more and more with the culture, they're interfering more and more with the social structures and everything, mm. the community breaks down. In the same way that colonies always did. The society, the culture is destroyed systematically, mm. sometimes through negligence, as you'll see with um, the a lot of the things that the East India Trading Company did were purely because like they were only looking at like treating India for 
as like a profitable endeavor yeah. rather than a thing. Like not to excuse it at all. I think that it's just as evil of a thing to do. But you've got to remember that people aren't coming in to destroy a culture. They're no. coming in thinking that they're doing a good thing, but then destroying the culture because the thing that they think they have to get rid of is the only thing that makes people happy and makes the community work. I mean, yeah, that, and that's the thing is negligence is still... Like, negligence, even if you don't know it's negligent, can still be an, an immoral thing because it shows that you haven't taken the time to understand the effects of what you're doing. Yeah. And it so it got to the point where people would... So, essentially, missionaries would come in and try to eradicate kava and the, like, local drugs in the community and everything. Mm. And simultaneously, merchants were coming in with gin and shit. And so... As jobs break down, as communities break down, as societies and cultures break down, You're people are left with less spirits. and less to do and more and more spirits. And so that's why you'll see that's, that is a big part of why a lot of indigenous cultures and stuff, a lot of indigenous communities rather, not cultures, cult, there's no, that wouldn't make sense. A lot of indigenous communities that, like are, around, that are still around today mm. uh, have commonly like alcohol problems and stuff is like a kind of like uh, like uh, like alcoholism is like endemic to a lot of indigenous communities because of like this systematic destruction of culture and it was only replaced with booze and it happened the same thing happened with the british working class when they introduced gin over there because it was just as everyone was forced out of the country into towns and then all of a sudden on every fucking street corner is a gin house that lets you get blackout drunk and sleep on the straw in the basement for a tuppence oh boy have i got, I got some comments on that when uh when we get to the end of the app. So it's it's just, it's crazy. So so it's like, th- so that's why I think it's important to know that because that's why drugs break communities down. Yeah. Is because culture is destroyed and replaced with intoxicants. Yeah. The other thing is, the other time that this, the other way that this can be a big problem is a s- systemic state-sponsored drug campaign. That's never happened, surely. Can you, can you keep your fucking conspiracy theories on your own time? That's never happened. Let's take a little moment and talk about opium, shall we? Now. Sounds fake. Oh, Mike, Mike's going handheld now. So, opium. Fun drug. Originally was being made in India, right? Mm. And so what happens is the East India Trading Company shows up and there are some wars between some some like kingdoms in India at mm. the time. And the East India Trading Company comes along under the behest of the British government to make money out of India. And so they're like, okay, they get an army together and everything because this is a time where you've got to remember the East India Trading Company is the reason that British corporations exist. Mm. It was the first incorporated business in Britain, I'm pretty sure. Um, it was like the third corporation in the world. There was like yeah, a Dutch one it. and there was like another one. Um, and so the East India Trading Company is looking around for somewhere to make some money. Uh, and they find this, they essentially find this battle between going on, this like war going on between some kingdoms in India. And they back one side, uh, essentially win the war. Mm. Um, and a peace treaty has to be signed. Now, the peace treaty isn't being signed by kingdoms or rulers. It's being signed by a, a prince and a businessman. 
And so the businessman comes along and he says, well, here's how things go like this usually. Usually, if you lose to another kingdom, you'll let them take taxes in your area. I say, you let us take your taxes. And so, and so, they start taking tax specifically through opium and shit like that. Yep. And now, they didn't have anywhere to sell it, really. So, oh dear. So, they were like, what can we do with all this G dang opium? This is, this is, um, Revenge of the Sith all over again. I know the conclusion, but I can't help but having my, my face in my hands at how this is going down. Yeah, it's like watching like historical dramas and you're like, oh man, I know how this goes, don't I? <laughs> Um, no, Marie Antoinette, don't, don't do, do that. Ah, oh, not again. Ah, <laughs> oh, East India Trading Company. Love those guys. They've always been portrayed as the heroes in every movie I've ever watched. The East India Trading Company have never been the villains, ever. Um, oh, yes. So here's what happened. Sorry, I couldn't remember the, th- the, the specific reason. The reason was... China was self-sufficient. And so, and so, at this point, the East India Trading Company has, I mean, by now, is at, either has or is developing their complete control over India. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but there was an act passed in England called the Government of India Act um, where they decided, they decided, so they were like, look, I'm getting so okay, much noise I, from your mic. I Can you please put it, back? put it back? I really wish that that worked. I, I yeah, really the drama was really there, but it was... Yeah, that, that, got, that got too difficult to hold mm. still. Um, so, fucking what was I saying? Uh, the Government of India Act. Oh, yes. So the Government of India Act uh, basically comes along at one point and they're like, oh, shit, fucking the East India Trading Company is way too big and way too powerful and they're just kind of doing whatever the fuck they want over there we should take away some of their power. And so they did. They broke up the monopoly. But they broke up the monopoly by then saying, you don't need to sell things because we're going to give you plenary powers over India. The Government of India Act stripped the East India Trading Company of all of its commercial abilities. They were not allowed to trade in anything except opium and the the thing that they were given as recompense was they were made the government of India. Yeah, so I've got the, a, a definition of plenary power here because I'm a pleb and didn't know what it mean, meant. Uh, plenary power is a power that has been granted to a body or person in absolute terms with no review of... No review of or limitations upon the exercise of that power. You get power over a thing and nobody has a right to question that. Yep. And why um, would you? The East India Trading Company are good guys who want what's best for India. Yeah, so the British government basically... It's not the, it's not the East England Trading Company. It's the East India. It's in the name. So the, so the, government, ha- the government in... Britain has effectively reserved for themselves constitutional and judicial powers, but only really for the sake of upholding the plenary executive and legislative power of the East India Trading Company. England also has Hong Kong. 
Yes. At a certain point in this. Which is famously not a contentious uh, area at all. And so, none of these things weren't all at the exact same time. Like, this was a progression from, like, India and Hong Kong and everything. But it's important to note because that was the level of control that they had in the area at the time. And now, China didn't want anything from England. And they fucking didn't want anything from Hong Kong anymore. That was for goddamn sure. Especially not opium. Opium had existed in China. It was a thing that people used, but there was no reason to buy opium from anywhere else and it wasn't and it was frowned upon to begin with. So the way they got around this was first of all there was no enforcement of the ban from Hong Kong. So opium just kept fucking coming and going, just coming and going from Hong Kong. And then and then the British government comes along and they're like, we need to get some more fucking opium into, into China. And we have so much in India. The problem is, all of our ships have our flag on them. And China says, fuck you, Britain. Stop selling out all your goddamn opium here. The emperor comes along and is like, and starts, starts like releasing mandates. And is mm. like, oh my God, everyone stop fucking taking opium from the Brits. Mm. They're killing us. They're giving us way too much fucking opium. Because there was no demand for anything. In fact, there, w- there was a commissioner. Uh, there was a commissioner involved. Specifically, said had there been a- an alternative, say molasses or rice, the conflict could have been called the molasses war or the rice war. This is about the opium war. But of course, nobody wanted anything else. It was the only thing that they could fucking sell. Mm. And so they started this elaborate system where they would get opium from India because it was kind of like offshore, off of the main body of India, mm. where they were getting it, where they were like farming it for the most part. So they would get it into mainland India. They would put it on boats with different flags and they would just send it into China. Oh my God. And so that was one way. You know you're doing something fucked up if you're flying the wrong flag deliberately. Well, the thing was they could justify it by saying they're just doing business. They're just trading. They're not doing anything. This is in England. This is the East India Trading Company. No, it wasn't even the East India... Like, they... I'm not talking not British flags. I'm talking, like, not company flags. They couldn't fly company flags into the thing. The East India Trading Company had their own flag. They couldn't put it on company ships because they would be searched for opium. There was one port where you could sell it and only a little bit and had to be... There were, like, very specific regulations. So they would show up. They would take all the company ships to this port. They would bribe every official. There was, I think, three people were sent by the emperor to be, like, the commissioner of this area because they kept getting paid off by the British to let opium in. So they had to have the other two to stop the other the other one taking bribes. No, I mean, like, they kept getting fired and, se- and sending, sending new people I to Canton. they sent three at a time just to try and, like... St- Keep each other honest. It was absolutely wild. Honestly, it, it pretty it pretty cl- pretty got pretty fucking close to that point. They, it got to the point where they were inventing new smuggling methods. They had specific types of boats called flying spiders, um, and that's what they translate to. Which was basically they would they would send in the company ships full of opium, and then if the officials were around, they would drop it into these little smuggling rowboats that were like three-person rowboats that were way faster than the boats that the that the Chinese officials used. So they would just fucking skim off down the rivers. They'd just like leave the, the company boats, skim off down the rivers, and then once they'd been forgotten about, swing back around. And they would be so fast that like you wouldn't be able to search, follow them and search the ship. So by the time they got back to the ship, all the opium's gone. They'd search mm-hmm. the ship and it would be empty. Um... And it was so it just like fucking kept happening. There was a there was a 
law eventually where any boat coming from Britain or with ties to Britain that had any opium on board, all of their stuff was seized and taken by the Chinese government. And so then Britain starts coming up with things to make it so that they couldn't then seize it from their ships. That's when they start putting like different flags at all the ships and stuff. They're like, fuck, well, our boats can't come in with opium. So Sorry. we're going to send in someone else's boats with opium. Can you hey, can you send me these links about how to smuggle drugs into a country, please? Just for research, for my D&D campaign. So you get your yieldy boogie board. <laughs> I get my boogie board, I get my little tiny rowboat, and I really just go for it. Yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the big problem was and that... The reason that it became such a big issue was Chinese opium wasn't as good. Indian opium was better quality. Mm. It was stronger stuff, essentially. And so, and they could have maybe argued that like, oh, we were just trying to give them like a, it was just like a harmless pastime. Like we weren't doing anything wrong. It was just people wanted to smoke opium. So we sold them opium. But they didn't. They came in and they were like, we're going to flood China with opium because we need the money. Because, yeah. I mean, big expansionist empires like that can't be funded with anything other than exploitation. Yeah. And so that's what they did. And it was interesting because banning it didn't work. And you see this throughout history everywhere. Banning shit doesn't work. If you ban it, people get around it. You ban Britain sending in opium, they send it on a different boat. You ban tobacco in England people start smuggling it. Uh, there was a king in England who tried to ban tobacco completely because he thought it was a terrible, terrible habit. Ended up having to tax it, and it was the main profit of his regime. It was the main reason they made money, because it was that difficult. For a while, they were threatened to cut hands off of people and shit for smoking it. Uh, did, did somebody say uh, Australian government? What? Hmm? It's crazy. Yeah, the Australian government, their next step is... Their like taxation on... Uh, on uh, tobacco and alcohol is such a huge part oh, of revenue, revenue that they can no longer... It's absolutely boggling how... Also, how often they raise that shit, because I used to sell cigarettes when I was working in IGA, and literally every couple of weeks... I want you to know, I'm an idiot. I was, like, 15. I didn't keep track of these prices, but I swear to God, every two weeks, the same guy would come in and be like, oh, it's the price has gone up again. Oh, thanks. I was like, I don't even know how you know this, but... okay. They just keep raising it. Um, the covers aren't ugly enough. You do have to start paying with body parts every time you buy cigarettes. And I want you to know, I'm getting my job back at the IGA and I am getting a big cleaver. So, Yeah, it's just, it's just interesting though, because like, as this is happening, as this is happening, as Chinese society is breaking down because of all of these external factors, all of this pressure and everything being put on them by all of these like external powers, this furious attempt from the emperor to crack down rather than handle the the, co- the cause of the problem, mm. which was like less work available, less everything, less uh, cultural roots, all sorts of these things that were like, not to say the, I mean, cultures are, a complicated thing. Mm. Um, but there's a difference between culture changing naturally over time as populations diversify and cultures being destroyed from the outside by a violent imperialist force. Yeah. And that's what was happening. But you'll notice that I haven't mentioned any problems in India because in India, nobody cared. In India, it was being made by the East India Trading Company and they were the government. They didn't give a shit. So people just took it. They took it the same way people took coca in Peru. They would take it. They would get through that. It would help them get through their day. 
It would help them do more work on less food and less whatever and feel happier. And that was it because it wasn't criminalized. It was never punished. There was never this push against it. And you see it every single time in history. Things are fine until you get rid of something, until you try to push against it, rather than realizing that something is wrong to cause this problem. Because if you then try to get rid of the opium in a culture that doesn't have anything else anymore, then they've got nothing. I mean... uh, So they just do more opium. If you're having trouble picturing the sort of effects of this, it's like prohibition. It's Mm. the American prohibition and Mm. the bootlegging era. It's the same shit happened. Yeah, because every single time that anyone has tried to prohibit a substance, it has been because it is causing some issue, usually to revenue. Mm. And the issue to revenue usually comes from the mismanagement of their economy, from the like things breaking down. And if it gets to the point where the king is that concerned about, shit, we need to get someone over to China selling opium stat, the fucking peasants aren't doing well by that point. Mm-hmm. The king notices that shit a hell of a lot later. And so, like, yeah, you get rid of these things, people have nothing left, and they're forced to either double down or be punished. You, you're punished or you're punished. You, you're d- yeah. you double down and you get punished by the government or you suffer because your whole community's been destroyed and you don't even have anything to help you forget about it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, so that is more or less the progress of the the role of drugs in society throughout history. Mostly a chill thing for shamans or workers, but as soon as someone comes in, as soon as a colonizer comes in or prohibition steps up or something, it devastates a population. Mm. Um, Oh, I will note, just because I didn't didn't explain it, the reason mainly that we shifted away from it being like a shamanistic thing uh, towards like things prophecies being like written based on rules and stuff um was mostly seems to be because as these things were being developed as these like practices involving drugs and stuff were being developed um kind of trends were developing and everything and so you would less need like people started writing down like oh in this circumstance with this 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 and this uh, we usually kind of get this kind of prophecy and stuff and so as these were kind of being codified um, it became more of a like scientific technical discipline. Mm. And so it got to the point where so much was written down, so many rules were known, that being intoxicated actually made it harder for you to remember the rules. Yeah. And, you, and the creativity was dangerous because, I mean, we're talking like institutional religion at this point where it's a hell of a lot easier to give your priests a book of prophecies they can make as opposed to giving someone drugs wild. that will let them make whatever prophecy they could come up with. Yeah. So, like, that's sort of where that shifts. It's mostly the Catholic Church that, that, that causes that shift away from, like, shamanistic drugs to, like, written priest prophecy. Uh, just because I, I realised I, mm. I didn't cover that. Yeah, I was no, that's good to know. Um, um, but, yeah, so it's, that was long and, and rambling. But <laughs> I think it kind of gets to the root of what do drugs do why do we use them and what happens when we do to like the community? Yeah. Um, so at this point in the episode, um, speaking as what will soon be past Tully, uh, I have no clue how long the two of us are going to go with our stuff. Mine isn't very long. Mine I'm short and sweet. could be short or could be very long. I don't know. Um, so what Oopsies. I'm thinking is I might cut this into two or I might not. So I'm going to say right now that we're going to see you next fortnight. Uh, 
feel, fi- feel fucking bad about that one. <laughs> wow, Lachlan, it's almost like you should have your own podcast. I wonder if you have any ideas centered around topics that you could talk about all by yourself. No, I don't think I have any podcast ideas. No, okay. I'm not, oh. I'm not working on anything. Not working on not anything. Working on nothing anything. in no, the works. Um, but what we might do is I'll, I'll cut it in two. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back to talk about drugs a little bit more next fortnight. Uh, also because I am in an, in, in an, in an assignment-induced haze. and uh, Wait till the end of October and then I'm pretty sure we'll both be there. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll just be in a school in October. <laughs> um, but um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you want to get in contact... Uh, Feel free to give, send us a message, uh, deepdivetnc at gmail.com. Or, or Dungeon Deep Dive is our social. It's just, that's what yep, we are. Right on right. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Can't um, miss us. Yeah, exactly. But um, thank you all very much. I'm going to do the outro music, and then we're going to record the rest of the app. Bye. Bye. Love you. I don't. That's your problem. I know. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 